This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Russia has invaded Ukraine. The capital, Kiev, is said to be a target. But Malcolm Nance, executive director of Terror Asymmetrics Project on Strategy Tactics and Radical Ideologies, says it's going to be a hard target. If that war or Moscow comes from Belarus down through Chernobyl or out west in Yeltsin or Chernayev, all these areas that are just north of the city, they could, in theory, be down here if they were driving unopposed in two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. But it'll probably take them two to three days. They can get to the city. They're never taking the city. Every person here would, uh, you know, they'll start throwing flower pots out the window at them, much less Molotov cocktails and AK-47s. This, this city will fight. Uh, and this country won't fold. And the Russians will lose an enormous quantity of manpower. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Early in February, before the Olympics started, I had a conversation with Malcolm Nance. He is the executive director of Terror Asymmetrics Project on Strategy, Tactics, and Radical Ideology, Tapestry. He's also a retired Navy cryptologist. Nance was in Ukraine at the time, and he was mapping out possible Russian attack routes. The reason that I'm playing this for you today and now is that much of what he said actually has come true. And he's also talking about things that could very well happen in the future. One of the things he pointed out in this particular podcast was that the people of Kiev would not give in. He talks about a lot more, and here's our conversation. Mr. Nance, you, as I understand it, are somewhere in Ukraine right now. Um, is that correct, or are we able to say where you are? Yeah, I, I'm in the capital. I'm in Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, but I'm traveling all around the country mm-hmm. doing a, an assessment of the, the Russian threat. Yeah. You know, I read a little bit about your assessment on Twitter this morning when you put it out. And one of the things that I thought was interesting at the very end of it, you said, despite what all, basically, despite all I've said, you still are not putting uh, or, or, or saying whether or not you think this is going to happen or not. But it looks a heck of a lot like it's about to, no? Well, you know, you have to see that there's two perspectives here. First, the perspective from Washington and the other capitals, they have a lot more intelligence than the people who, you know, who are in the news media, uh, certainly, uh, you know, in the print media. So when the president of the United States says that he feels that there is a possibility of a significant military action, 
or you know Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, comes and says that. They're speaking of a position where an enormous amount of collection intelligence data has been collected that we're not privy to. Now, the other perspective is here in Ukraine, on the street and in the ministries themselves. They have their own political uh, considerations to make. Principle is that they have to keep the country calm. They have to actually perceive the threat from their own, um, you know, based on their own capacity, their own ability to defend, which when you read Western media, you get this impression that the Russian force is absolutely overwhelming, that they could take this country. But I think a lot of the media is not viewing this from a, you know, mainly they don't really have the experience uh, to assess a real land war. Now, I've been in intelligence for almost 30 years, uh, you know, and I've been in several major land wars, including two major, you know, uh, two largest uh, ground offensives. And, you know, the, the, the friction that occurs when there is a military force that launches an operation, uh, it, it has to take into uh, a couple of factors. Principle is the willpower and determination of your enemy. Mm-hmm. Because just because you have overwhelming technological superior force doesn't mean that you're going to be able to beat oh, let's say uh, a guy who's running around in flip-flops with an AK-47 in the mountains of the Hindu Kush, like we did for 20 years and still lost that war to the Taliban. Um, So looking at it here, we're talking about two major military forces, one with overwhelming technical superiority, one with moderate capability, the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. The question is, does the land make it easy for the invasion? Do the people give in or do they, as they say in the Middle East, fight with their teeth? Okay. So let me ask you this question. I want to get specifically to the work you've been doing. Why are you doing this work? Why are you doing that assessment? Well, principally because this would be the, how can I put it? This would be the largest land war in Europe since World War II. If this if, if the Russians go through with this operation, I, uh, you know, I don't know what Vladimir Putin's calculations are. It's quite possible. It could be very possible that this is all a strategic feint in order to extract pressure from the West at the expense of Ukraine. Vladimir Putin sees Ukraine as a brick uh, that is a, a, a wall that protects him and his oligarchy from not NATO and NATO weapons, but from democracy seeping into Russia and infecting it to the point where the people there, they have some measure of access to Western goods. They have more money than they've ever had, but it's really an oligarchy. Money money just trickles down in very small amounts. Ukraine is not like that. This country has built an economic base from nothing, and they are are becoming an integral part of Western Europe. Russia sees that as a threat, principally because Vladimir Putin, who is an ex-KGB officer, an old Soviet communist, still sees these uh, the Soviet view of having a buffer of Belarus, Kaliningrad, Ukraine 
against what he views as an as an approaching Western military force. And that's not true at all. It's really democracy he's terrified of. Yeah. So I hear you. My question, though, is you live a very comfortable life here in the U.S., or at least (laughs) on the outside looking in. But you're sitting in Kiev right now, which is a hot spot, no doubt. Why? What? What? Why? Why are you there? Okay. Well. F- well. First off, I, you know, as a national security uh, expert, I, I really don't just work anymore in the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I, I I did most of my initial operations when it was a little secret. I started out as a Russian speaking cryptologically oh, okay. uh, and transitioned over to Arabic. I'd never saw uh, that in your bio. We're talking about a, a, a <laughs> we're we're talking about a very dynamic threat. Okay. Not just to not just to the United States, you know, strategic interests with NATO, but again, this is a global war. Mm-hmm. And I wrote about this in a book that I had published uh, 3 years ago called the plot to destroy democracy, yes. which was about Putin and his spies undermining, you know, America and dismantling the West. And this is a this is a global campaign of, of not just oligarchy, but an, an autocrat mm-hmm. who has been seeding Western Europe political bodies with right wing fascist autocrats in order to do what Vladimir Putin said he was going to do a few years ago which is dismantle liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. And he took a shot at us by electing Donald Trump as president. Ukraine on his border as a a thriving democracy, uh, he views that as his purview, his area and sphere of influence. Russia has no rights to say they have any sphere of influence outside of their own borders. That's to be left up to the the self-determination of the people in Ukraine. So I'm here to see, does Russia have that capacity? Does Ukraine have the capacity to defend this nation? Okay. And right now, I'm, I'm, I'm assessing both, as well as the invasion routes that Russia might take so that I can feel it from the ground, because that's, that's, my, that's my field, doing things from the ground. Yeah, I hear you. All right. So you're, you're not there on vacation, and you're not there doing it for free either, obviously. So you're doing it for a reason. And I, I get that. I completely understand that. And, you know, I'm glad that somebody like you is there doing that. A person that, you know, we can we can trust what you say. You know, we, we can trust what we hear from you. So sure. let me ask you this question. Well, can I go ahead? Can I make a point here real quick, JJ? Yep. Before Kiev is not Beirut in 1983. OK, there's a misimpression that this capital and this country is a country under siege, like Damascus or Tripoli, Libya or Benghazi. It's not. This is a city of the size of Chicago. There are three and a half million people in this city alone. Uh, And judging by the brisk work that bars and restaurants are doing, the people in Ukraine, they're not worried about the Russian threat. If it manifests itself, these are people who in 2014 physically fought uh, against the police that were trying to destroy their 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 efforts to bring democracy to the country. Uh, as I said, if if the Russians were to invade this country, uh, I believe it was the one of the former ministers of defense who said there will be a rifle in every window. Uh, the joke here is that uh, a Russian invasion 
would uh, would 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 be an invitation to the largest Molotov cocktail party in the history of the world. Elaborate on that a little bit. Instead of rifles, Molotov cocktails, and uh, why you say that? Bricks, stones. Uh, I got to tell you something. If if your audience hasn't wants to get a good backgrounder on Ukraine, watch the movie called Winter on Fire on Netflix, yes. which is the struggle of the people and how they had the Maidan or the Orange Revolution, which threw off uh, Viktor Yanukovych, who was Moscow's hand-selected dictator who rigged an election and got himself elected. By the way, Donald Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was here in Kiev working for him and actually created the dirty tricks which helped the Russians take Crimea, Donetsk, and Luhansk. So they got rid of Yanukovych at the cost of over 100 people dead, thousands of people wounded, and then Russia invaded three states, Crimea, Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, which were, yes, majority ethnic, uh, pro-Moscow ethnic Russians, but it was Ukraine territory. Mm -hmm. And they have seized those three provinces. And this country has been at war nonstop in those provinces. And they've lost over 14,000 dead civilians and soldiers. So to them, they're ready. If, if that war or Moscow comes from Belarus down through Chernobyl or out west in Yeltsin or Ch Chernayev, all these areas that are just north of the city, they could, in theory, be down here if they were driving unopposed in two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. But it'll probably take them two to three days. They can get to the city. They're never taking the city. Every person here would, uh, you know, they'll start throwing flower pots out the window at them, much less Molotov cocktails and AK-47s. This, this city will fight. Uh, and this country won't fold. And the Russians will lose an enormous quantity of manpower. Yeah. And I want to ask you the question about that. Um, do Russians back home in Russia have the stomach to see that? Those body bags like that flowing back in with young people that have gone over there to fight? You know, during the, uh, the the Chechen war, during, you know, where Russia invaded Chechnya, the Georgian war, where they brought troops down to South Ossetia, uh, and the war in Donetsk, uh, Luhansk, and Crimea, the Russians were were so afraid of how the families of their, you know, the Russian army is no longer conscripts. There are some conscripts in there. The Russian army is an all-volunteer force. These people are on contracts. And like our armed forces, their families have something to say about this. And the Russians would, would ship home the dead individually in what they call, you know, uh, you know uh, I, I think it was called Project 200, or, uh, which was a, a reference to a corpse uh, or a trainload of corpses and quietly bury these people. They also use mercenaries. They have PMC Wagner, which is, uh, you know, Putin's personal uh, representative, uh, uh, Prigozhin, that is his mercenary force. They were in Libya, Congo, Syria. Hundreds of them have been pulled out and are now being brought back up here because they're lawless. And they can do anything they want. Mass murder, pogroms, whatever you want to do. But the Russian army, which is sitting out in the field and has been for two and a half months, these guys are human too. And they have mothers, fathers who all have Facebook or, or V-contact, as they call it. And they have the capacity to take videos and make statements. And the question is, if their soldiers were to start coming home by the hundreds 
or they start seeing burning armored convoys being blitzed by U.S. Javelin missiles, which are very, very capable missile. The Russians are terrified of the Javelin missile because you just aim it, you point it, you pull the trigger, and then you run, and the missile does all the work. Um, then these people will start asking questions like, why are we invading our, you know, a country that's been part of the Russian uh, history forever? Why are we invading? Putin has come up with no cross his belly for this war. He just wants to do it. Let me ask you this question. Um, that's a very interesting assessment there. Um, and we haven't even gotten to the, the critical part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you was what you found. Reading just some of the information that you've posted, you've kind of chronicled, it seems almost step by step, piece by piece, what you've learned about mm. how they would invade, where they would invade, what they would use to invade. You've sort of painted the, the broad picture of the impact of an invasion. But I want to talk to you for a few minutes, though, about what you, the nuts and bolts of what you've actually found about how they would try to do an invasion if they did. Right. Yeah, one of the things that I'm doing here, and, and I, I learned this very often when I was in U.S. intelligence, is get a look at where the, the axes of attacks are going to be, right? There are just places they must attack. There are roads they must take. There are crossroads and intersections that they're going to have to fight for. And we all can see based on what you read on the Internet and uh, you know, organizations like CSIS, Institute for the Study of War, uh, can lay out the order of battle of Russian forces. And, and, you know, one of the chroniclers of that is R.A. Lee at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, who is a minute to minute, every time a video of a Russian tank convoy on a train goes, he's, you know, people are tracking these things. Now, that's where the Russian force capacity is. But those forces have to do, they have to get off those trains. They need to move from uh, the train depot to a forward bivouac. They need to refuel. They need to rearm. They need to have be married up with the individual soldiers. Those soldiers must do systems tests. And then they have to go out in their table of organization equipment and move into the field or stay in uh, you know, a concern type situation, a, a, a giant bivouac situation. When you move from the bivouac to the field, that's when things get concerning. And when real ammunition starts moving from all over Russia into these forward rearm refuel points, and then you have your follow-on forces start getting into position, and then you go out into the trees and live on the, you know, inside your tank or in the back of a truck, that's when you start getting concerned about a real invasion. We're seeing some of that. Many of these units are in training, but they must, for example, if you want to take Kiev, there's, there's the only way to do it is, is through the avenues of approach from the western side coming down from the village of Yeltsk through in Belarus. You would have to go down and take the, the crossroad town to the west of Zaitomir to cut off the western side of the city. And then you would have to try to fight your way through Ukrainian army forces to the southwest side of the city in the south to cut the, the reinforcements off there. Coming down from the center would be forces that would go straight through the Chernobyl radioactive preserve 
Because why? Principally because no one would think you would drive through a radioactive preserve. Perfect place to attack through, right? They have armored vehicles that have the capacity to not, you know, suck up the radiation there. Mm-hmm. And then from the east, you would have to come down to Chernayev, where there is a major formation of Ukrainian defensive forces. You would have to beat them or at least hold them and try to come down to the east and hold the crossroads so that your forces coming from Kursk towards Sumy would be able to attack from the east. The problem is, is that you can get to Kiev in what we would call phase line zero, right? That's that assessment of 48 to 72 hours. Yeah, but you're just going to get to the outskirts. It is an enormous city. I mean, full of four, six, 10, and 20-story apartment complexes. Everything is going to rain down on you. You cannot, this is not Chechnya. It isn't Beirut. It would take months of hand-to-hand, street-to-street fighting in this city to defeat just the citizens' population here. But the Russians could take the entire eastern access of Sumy, Kharkiv, Luhansk, Donetsk, and push out uh, and take all the land that they didn't get in Donetsk and Luhansk over the last eight years. That would be a limited operation. But, you know, one, one thing, Ukraine's the size of Germany, Austria, and Switzerland all together laid sideways. It, it takes like 20 hours to drive end to end. No one is going to be able to just cakewalk through this. This would be a months long operation. He would need three, four hundred thousand troops to take this whole country. Right. So let me get you to give me the executive summary of everything, your experience there so far and what it means in terms of what the U.S. is warning about, you know, today and over the weekend. They said they had intelligence suggesting over the weekend, I'm saying the uh, 5th and 6th of February, they're saying they have intelligence suggesting that um, this 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 potential invasion could come any day. Uh, mm-hmm. and that 50,000 people in Kiev could die, um, that it would be a mm-hmm. massive, massive bloodbath as well for, I think, the Russians, as you've said. But uh, give me your mm-hmm. uh, executive summary on what you think, uh, you wh- what you found, and what you think is actually going to play out here. Well, what I've found is, is, is this. The Russians could carry out a military operation If they wanted a limited operation, they would just put forces in the south and take the remaining territory of Donetsk and Luhansk, where their rebel uh, allies had been fighting and holding a trench line against Ukrainian forces for eight years. They could just take that land, push Ukrainian forces back. Um, That's a very limited operation. That would still violate Joe Biden's um, sanction rule. One foot over the border. Uh, board shots has said one toe cap and the sanctions go into effect a a very serious level of operation but which would not be a nation ending operation would be to take everything along that axis the entire eastern side of ukraine which would include two additional ukrainian cities sumi and kharkiv uh kharkiv is a very big industrial base uh, the, it's an, there are a lot of ethnic Russians that live there. 
But don't be fooled. I, I, I spoke to a person today who works in the defense industry, and he said, I'm Russian. Or, you know, I'm, I, I speak Russian. I'm ethnic Russian. But I'm Ukrainian first. We are a nation with our own values and our own lifestyles. And just because we speak Russian doesn't mean that we're loyal to Vladimir Putin, which means that, you know, they, it's not going to be a cakewalk. But pushing West in another phase line, you know, uh, and trying to take Kiev and think that it's going to be, you know, a, a, a cakewalk by either dropping airborne troops onto the international airport or helicoptering troops directly into the city and seizing buildings and doing commando actions. All you're going to do is have, as one person said to me this week, every day, every street will be Maidan, right? The Maidan uprising. Only it'll be Russians that'll be getting killed this time. Mm. So... Do you think then the calculus may be more towards what you mentioned, that limited operation to take some territory? Uh, and would they be willing to risk, I guess, these tough sanctions that we've been hearing about that they're going to get in doing that? Um, it, but do you think that that's, that's their most likely target as opposed to the Maidan every day and people throwing flower pots out of every building and whatever they got at Russian troops? Hmm. I think what we need to do is, is take a look at it from the intelligence and, and, and battle commander's perspective. The enemy has several courses of action they can choose from. And what we're seeing in, in many of these assessments in the newspaper are what we would call the most dangerous course of action, right? This is, you know, a full-scale invasion, 100,000 troops. You would need another 100,000 to follow one, 50,000 Russian uh, National Guard occupation troops and a bloodbath, right? Fifty thousand civilians, fifty thousand at a very minimum. I mean, look at the look at what we saw in Iraq, right? In the first couple of years, a hundred thousand or more killed because artillery is very indiscriminate, and the Russians have a complete and total disregard for human life when they start fighting. So they're not going to care whether you know all forty of their one hundred and twenty millimeter rockets hit inside that grid and kill 100 or 200 civilians, they're going to want to hit their objective. So um, that's the most dangerous course of action would be the full scale invasion of this country. Um, a moderate course of action would be going and taking Luhansk and Donetsk and uh, pushing out of Crimea to take the Kherson, Melitopol axis and give them a bridge all the way up from Luhansk. Uh, you can look at this on a map, and that's very limited, but it would still involve some intense combat. Um, and then there's the most likely course of action. The most likely course of action is unknowable at this point. Um, the most likely course for Vladimir Putin would be to find a reason to say that he gained a concession out of NATO and that Ukraine's capacity to become more Western or join NATO is limited through a treaty of some type, because that's what he's terrified of. He doesn't so, want them in NATO. So do, they're, they're on their way. So you think he's looking for a way out? He has to be looking for a way out because anything shy of that is madness. Uh, you know, and again, I, in my, my preliminary assessment, I said, I will leave the, the go, no go decision-making process to people who know him personally, like former Ambassador Mike McFall or, you know, uh, Ambassador Fiona Hill, people who have sat down with this guy and, 
and know whether he's 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 just going to commit the entirety of the Russian armed forces to creating a trillion dollars damage, hundreds of thousands uh, of people dead and wounded, and a nation that will fight them again with their teeth forever, and maybe even carry out operations into Belarus or uh, Russia itself. Uh, I was discussing with a Russian ex-Ukrainian uh, special forces guy today, and he said, well, if I were commander of Ukraine's forces and they invade this country, I would take a six-man dive team and I would blow up the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Hmm. You want to play this game? We're going to deny you the ability to sell your oil to, to Western Europe or your gas to Western Europe. That's a bold statement and it's doable, but it would seriously hurt Putin. Putin would never get Nord Stream 2. That's already been said. Uh, if this is done for economics and they think that they're going to be able to sell to China, well, you know, I, th I suspect that uh, Putin would have to actually lose his mind mm. to do this. The most likely course of action is a slow walk down in a, in a belief that he got a concession. That's Malcolm Nance, retired Navy cryptologist and executive director of Tapestry. Lots of insight inside of that guy. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode... The sanctions against Russian President Vladimir Putin and his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. Well, as we know from the statements of assets, uh, both men just have small flats in uh, Moscow and, uh, and old cars, uh, uh, which is all they can afford on their official salaries. But Radek Sikorsky, a member of the European Parliament and chair of the EU delegation to the U.S., says something else is at play. At the same time, one hears uh, multi-million pound flats in London and billions of uh, dollars uh, stashed away under, um, uh, under other people's names. So I hope uh, when we are freezing their assets, um, we really go after the, um, the, the, the money stolen from the Russian people. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, it's Jesse Coe from Kicking It With The Coves, and we've got a great, great guest this week. Yes, we do. Leo Byronberg. He's one of the composers behind all the music on the Cobra Kai series. This is the music that Johnny hears in his head when he thinks he's being a badass. So we wrote this piece, it's called Strike First. Now it gets used as the end credits in the show, so I'm sure everyone is super familiar with it. Please rate, review, and follow Kicking It With The Coves on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast One, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.